Please turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mike, for reading God's word to us. And thank you all for gathering together to worship God. In, in the name of Christ and the power of his spirit. We've, uh, we've recently been exploring the Lord's Prayer together as a church. And at the outset, I said that we're doing this for a few different reasons. One of them is that the Lord's Prayer, which Mike just read to us, actually teaches us a lot about what it looks like to be a Christian what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus. But this Lord's Prayer also teaches us about Jesus himself. As we read these words that Jesus tells us to pray, we're learning about his heart, what he cared about, how he made sense of the world, and how he related to his Father. But the first reason I gave you for why we're studying the words of the Lord's Prayer is maybe what might look like the most obvious reason. It's that a lot of us struggle with prayer. That's why we're studying this. A lot of us struggle with prayer. We wrestle with, with what to make of prayer. We, we wrestle with understanding why it even matters. Why should I pray? And if, and if prayer does matter, then, then how should I do it? <laughs> what, what should I even pray for and, and why? So today, I want to start by telling you about a woman who struggled to know what to make of prayer. She struggled with prayer the way that many of us struggle with prayer. Her name is Anisha. Anisha. And Anisha was born in Italy in the fourth century. And the rest of Anisha's name is, is Faltona Broba, but I'm just going to call her Anisha. Faltona Broba sounds to me like a, like a Star Wars name, like she's part of the Star Wars universe, a Jedi or something. So I'm just going to call her Anisha. She grew up wealthy. She got married, and at a young age, she was widowed. Her, her husband passed away, and her hometown of Rome was invaded around 410 A.D. And so what she had to do, she and her daughter had to flee to Africa. And there in Africa, where they went to find safety, they were actually taken captive. Eventually, they were freed after the, her family paid a ransom, and they ended up settling in North Africa. They ended up settling in a region that's now considered part of Algeria. Anisha led a very eventful life. It was an adventurous life, but it was also a very, very difficult life. But along the way, during that hard life, she met Jesus. I don't mean she met him physically face to face. What I mean is that she heard about him. 
and she believed in him, and she entrusted her life to him. And she set out to learn what it looked like to live as a Christian. In her context, 5th century, North Africa, as a widowed woman. So in 412 AD, Anisha received a letter. The letter was from a man named Augustine. And Augustine, or Augustine, we can call him. He happens to be, Augustine is, one of the most important uh, philosophers and theologians in all of world history. Augustine lived an interesting life, too. As a young man, he was what you might call a pleasure seeker. He was looking for meaning. He was looking for purpose. He was looking for satisfaction in the world. And he tried to find it in so many different ways. He tried to find it through sex and casual relationships with with many, many women. He tried to find it through stealing things that he wanted. He tried to find meaning and satisfaction through philosophy, too. He He was an explorer. He explored and he experimented with many different things. He had this brilliant mind, an extraordinary mind. But eventually, gradually what happened is Augustine realized that nothing made him happy. Nothing left him actually feeling full or satisfied. And so eventually, Augustine came to faith in Jesus Christ too. He writes about all this in a book called Confessions. It's his, his memoirs or, or his autobiography. And in his Confessions, he writes these words. He said, you made us for yourselves, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's what one impression. Did you show the other picture before that? This is, these are just some ideas of what Augustine may have looked like. We don't really know for sure. We know that he was North African. We knew that his his father was, um, was, was Roman, but his mother was, was uh, Berber. She was from the Berber people group. And so in any case, through all his experiences, this man comes to realize that he was actually made to find satisfaction, not in all the things that he was trying to find satisfaction in. He was actually made, just like all of us are made, to find satisfaction in the God who made us. And until he found satisfaction in God, his life was void of peace. He lived unfulfilled until he found what he was looking for in God. Augustine ended up becoming a bishop, the bishop of Hippo. Hippo is a, a region of Algeria. And in 412, he wrote a letter to Anisha. And she had actually asked him for advice. She had asked him, as the bishop of Hippo, tell me what it means to pray. I'm a new Christian. I don't know how to pray. What should I pray for? And this was his answer in a nutshell. He says, a short answer to your difficulty is this. Pray for a happy life. This is what everyone wishes to have. That was his advice. Pray for a happy life, Anisha. That's not something you might expect a theologian, one of the greatest theologians in history, to say. It sounds almost too simple. But Augustine knew something. He knew that the basic craving of every human heart is to be happy. And he knew that only all of us, we only do those things which we think will make us happy. We only voluntarily take actions that we think will make us happy, either in the short term or the long term, either 
long-term happiness or fleeting happiness, but we all want to be happy. And so he says, pray for that, Anisha. Pray for a happy life. And then what he does is he goes on to show her what that means. And to show her what that means, he writes a long letter. And in that letter, he unpacks the Lord's Prayer. He says, let's look at this prayer together. And that might sound weird to you because as we read the Lord's Prayer, maybe you've heard it so many times. Even if you've never grown up in church, you may have heard this Lord's Prayer said. Nowhere in it is happiness even mentioned. But he says, this whole prayer is a prayer for a happy life. And he unpacks that for Anisha. So today, we're actually coming to verse 10 in Matthew 6. This line in the Lord's Prayer that says, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what I want us to do is look at those words through the lens that Augustine gives us. What, what does this prayer, what, and more specifically, what do those lines have to do with praying for a happy life? Really, this is what we're going to do. We're going to answer two questions. What do these words mean, and what do they have to do with me and my happiness? <laughs> what do these words mean, and what do they have to do with me and my happiness? So, so what do they mean, first of all? We've got to just define terms and understand what this prayer is saying. Your kingdom come, God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we hear the word kingdom, many of us think of a place, like the United Kingdom or some other kingdom. But the word here that's used for kingdom throughout the New Testament, the Greek word, it's a fun word to say. I love the way it sounds. It's basileia, basileia. I like, if I had another daughter, maybe I'd name her basileia. I don't know, I like that word. But the word doesn't mean a place. It means more like an activity. You see, this word has to do with God's rule, with his reign, his active kingship. So when we say, your kingdom come, what we're saying is, Lord, may, may the reign of God come. May your rule and your kingship come. Now, the thing that may be confusing about that is that God is already king, isn't he? We sang to that effect just a few moments ago. God's kingdom, his rule, is already in effect. It exists, and he reigns over everything. So much so that Jesus tells his disciples, the kingdom of, the kingdom of God is among you. God's rule is right here, right now. Luke 17. But on the other hand, Jesus also tells his disciples to pray for the coming of the kingdom. And that the kingdom will come, it'll arrive when it's least expected. So the kingdom, God's rule, is real now, and yet we're told to pray that it would come. As if it's a future reign. Here's how we make sense of all that. When Jesus says the kingdom of God has come near, or the kingdom of God is at hand, he's declaring that God is asserting his rule in the world through Jesus. In Jesus' ministry, through his presence, God is ruling. I like the way Wesley Hill puts it. He says, Jesus is heralding the fact that God, like a king who has been abroad and absent from his native land, finally is returning to take back his throne. He has returned 
to take what is his. So God's reign has arrived with the arrival of Jesus who came to die for his people and rose again. But at the same time, the reign of God as king will only fully arrive in the, in the totality of what that means when the risen, ascended Jesus returns to finalize everything. Theologians say to consummate the kingdom, to close the deal, to establish God's reign in a way that's final and and in a way that's obvious to everyone. You see, right now as Christians, some of us might say, yes, the kingdom of God is here. But many might look at that and say, I don't see a kingdom of God. Where do, where do you see a kingdom of God? I don't see God ruling. I see chaos ruling. If anyone's in charge around here, it looks like the enemy. It looks like Satan's in charge the way that things are going. God says, no, the kingdom is at hand. It's here, but it's coming. It's coming in fullness. And when it comes in fullness, there will be no one on this planet that could look and say, where's the kingdom of God? It will be undeniably present, obvious to all. So right now, we, New Hope, we're living in that in-between phase, between what some call the already and the not yet. The kingdom's already here. The kingdom's not yet here as it will one day be here. One illustration that you, some of you probably heard before, Bible teachers use it a lot. They describe this, this mysterious already, not yet, nature of God's reign in terms of World War II, the distinction between D-Day and V-E Day. Those of you who know the history of World War II know what that means, but D-Day was the day when the Allied forces in World War II, they, they, they secured a foothold in France, 1944. It was a significant victory. Some would look back and say, that's when the war was won, D-Day. And yet, yet, what was still to come was V.E. Day, V.E. Day, or Victory in Europe Day, which happened almost a year later. It took another 11 months, and that's when Nazi Germany finally surrendered. The defeat happened a year back. They didn't finally surrender. They just kept taking losses and losses and losses until the Nazis finally surrendered on V.E. Day. There's a metaphor here for us. You see, Jesus defeated sin and death when he died and he rose again. But it's when he returns that sin and death will finally be erased once and for all. That's why Jesus cries out. He tells us to cry out, your kingdom come. It means, Father, Father, come and finalize your rule. Fulfill it completely. You know, one of the oldest prayers that Christians have been praying since the first century is, it, it was captured in one word. It was an Aramaic word, Maranatha. Maranatha. And that word, what it means is, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. What is that? It's a prayer for your kingdom come. Come. We've been waiting for VE Day. We've been waiting for the battle to be over so that everyone around the world can look and say, Christ is victorious. The new heavens and the new earth are here. We've been waiting. So Christ's church has been crying out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, for the past 2,000 years. But come Lord Jesus also means this. It means, Father, Father, make your current healing reign 
because you're already reigning in a sense now. I see it. I see you saving people. I see you healing people. I see you transforming lives. Lord, I, I know you're king right now. When we say your kingdom come, we're saying, Father, please do more of that. Make the current healing reign more and more tangible. Make it more and more visible in our world. We're praying, Lord, assert your rule ever more concretely now in those places where we see sickness and lostness and evil. And and, and it seems like lostness and sickness and evil seem to have the upper hand. Lord, come and correct that now. Because in this already not yet phase, in this in-between phase where we find ourselves, this isn't a time just to wait for Christ to return. No, Christ is doing, God is already at work now. In Mark 4, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's like a little tiny seed that's been planted in the ground. It looks small, it looks insignificant, but, but it's beginning to sprout. It's growing, and eventually it's going to become a tree. And and Jesus uses that word picture and lots of other word pictures to tell us that God's rescuing, renewing reign on this earth has already started. Yeah, what's, what's to come is going to be even better, but it has already started. It's growing. How's it grow? Every time someone comes to faith in Jesus, kingdom's growing. It's expanding. Christ's rule is being expanded and further asserted every time someone comes to believe in Jesus. Every time a Christian acts in obedience to their king, the reign of God is being asserted. Every time a Christian loves others, every time someone does justice in the name of King Jesus, anytime someone tells someone else about King Jesus, the kingdom is expanding. The kingdom is growing. The mustard seed is bringing forth a tree until until the day when Christ returns and the kingdom arrives in fullness. Wesley Hill puts it this way. He says, when we pray your kingdom come, we are in effect taking our stand against the world as it is now and asking for more and more foretastes of the world as it will be when the kingdom of God is finally consummated. We're asking to see, you see, we're asking to see more salvation. We're asking God for the salvation of our children. We're asking God for the salvation of our loved ones, for the salvation of our neighbors. We're asking God to transform our communities. We're asking for more reconciliation between enemies. We're asking for more healing. We're asking for more justice. We're asking for more purity and holiness in us and in others. We're asking to see less violence, racism. We're asking to see less sexual abuse, less sexual confusion. We're asking to see less suicide. Less disease. Now. Not just when Christ returns, but now we're saying, assert your power now, Lord. We want more of your kingdom to be visible and tangible to us now. I'm going to quote Wesley Hill one more time. He says, Father, when we, when we pray, 
we're saying, when we pray your kingdom come, we're saying, Father, let us see in the present more and more signs that the war you won against the powers that corrupt and enslave is real. It's a real victory. You really did win. He goes on, give us more tangible previews of that great day when death will be swallowed up in victory. This is what's packed into those words, those three little words, your kingdom come. And by the way, that future return of Christ and the fullness of the kingdom that it brings, that he will bring with him, that, that, that future, it involves tremendous hope. It also involves tremendous terror. What I mean is that it's a, it's a frightening future for some. For those who are doing evil in this world now and are unwilling to turn away from that evil, who are harming other, others, abusing others, deceiving others, hurting people, intentionally doing harm for those people who, who are all about the present order and don't wish for things to change. Oh, it's a frightening reality for those. It's a frightening prospect for anyone who rejects the Lord as king. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's the second part of what he says. Your will be done. And that second request, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's vitally linked to the first part about the kingdom. You see, because what we're doing is we're pleading When we say your your will be done, we're pleading that the actions that are done here on earth would more and more and more align with what God says is good, with what he commands. When we say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're acknowledging, first of all, that things are not right here. God's will is not being done when we look around us. We see the opposite. We see the, the will of the enemy. The, the, we see sin. We see the taking of lives senselessly. We see the, the taking of lives for reasons we can't understand. And we see the taking of lives for reasons we do understand, like racism and jealousy and hatred. And we look at it and we say, God's will is not being done. We acknowledge that when we say these words. We acknowledge that God is not being obeyed largely. And what we're doing is we're voicing our distress and grief over that. In one sense, your will be done as is on earth as it is in heaven is a prayer of lament. It assumes it's not being done, Lord. And it's too much for us to bear. We don't know what to say in response to all the suffering, either that we're experiencing or that we're witnessing. And all we can do is say, Lord, please, please. Make your will be done. Assert your power and your rule and your reign. We're holding on to the conviction that the brokenness we see around us is not permanent when we say those words. We're acting in faith and we're asking God to move in such a way that life on earth increasingly resembles the way that God has obeyed and enjoyed in heaven. We want things here to look more like they do in the presence of God in heaven, where where peace is experienced perfectly. So that's my attempt at kind of getting at what those words mean, but the second to last thing we have to ask is, what does this all have to do with me and my happiness? 
What does all this have to do with me and with my happiness? I hope you see there's a personal dimension to all this. In one sense, perhaps, it's obvious. If you love Jesus, when he returns to rule and the kingdom of God is brought forth in fullness, oh, there's going to be joy all around. There's going to be happiness for all his people and all the citizens of that kingdom. But when we pray these prayers, there's something a little bit more personal about it, too. When we pray these prayers, when we say your kingdom come, for instance, we're saying we want to be a part of the answer to this prayer. I want to be a part of the answer to this prayer. We want to be used by you to expand your kingdom through works of obedience to you that are rooted in faith, through acts of love, through acts of of kindness and generosity. We want to live lives that, that pursue justice and peace. We want, we want to be about your kingdom because that's where true happiness lies. That's what we're saying when we say your kingdom come. We're saying I want to be a part of that. Not just enjoy your kingdom. I want to be a part of expanding your kingdom. How much of your life, New Hope, is a question to consider. How much of your life is wrapped up in building your own kingdom? How much of your life is wrapped up in building your own kingdom? Remember, kingdom is not a place. Kingdom is an activity. So, how much of your life is taken up with exerting your rule? Building an empire for yourself. Many of you say, I'm not building an empire. My life's not much of an empire. But here's what I mean. Building an empire for yourself through career, or through learning, through earning and spending in order to create a life for yourself, a kingdom of sorts where you are comfortable and you are respected and you are successful. A kingdom where your kids are comfortable and respected and successful where you have built and curated for yourself a life that looks like a little kingdom, where you rule. You have curated for yourself a certain set of relationships that bring you, perhaps, status. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come means to hell with my kingdom. Forget about my kingdom, Lord. Forget about my selfish ambitions your kingdom come means i've come to realize that real happiness is nowhere to be found there (laughs) and 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 your kingdom come says says lord i've realized that the story you're writing is about your kingdom it's about your rule and in, in in the unfolding of that story that's where i will find real happiness That's where I'll find what I'm really after, the deep, lasting joy that I long for. So you see, to pray your kingdom come is to say, I willingly abandon my kingdom. Lord, dismantle it. There's no permanent happiness there anyway. I've wasted time on it. 
I've spent too long building a life for myself centered on my little throne and my little reign. Establish your reign, Lord. Yes, yes, I want you to establish in the whole world, but start here. Start here in my life. Reign here in my household. I don't want to be king anymore. I don't want to be king anymore. In fact, I want to be a part of your kingdom coming now. Your kingdom come means, means work through me. I've abandoned my own kingdom, dismantled that. I want to be a part of building your kingdom as you do it. I want to be the instrument. We can't build the kingdom of God, but we sure can be instruments in his hands to build his kingdom, to bring peace, to bring rescue, to bring healing, to bring comfort, real comfort. Your kingdom come is saying, I... I I want to communicate the gospel in ways that people will hear and understand and believe. There's more happiness to be found in a life spent working for your kingdom than there is in a life spent working for mine. That's what we're saying in part personally when we say your kingdom come. We're saying, Lord, I find it hard to believe at times, but I'm trusting you that there's more happiness for me when I seek your kingdom than there is when I seek mine. And your will be done. Your will be done. Those are scary words to say, aren't they? To surrender ourselves to someone else and say, you know what? Do what you want to do. When you know it's going to affect you. Those are risky words. And yet God says, say them to me. Say them to me in full confidence. Your will be done. How much of your unhappiness rises from things not happening the way you want them to? How much of your unhappiness rises from things not happening the way you want them to? How much of your unhappiness comes from you not getting your way, not seeing your dreams come to fruition? I know it's hard to quantify that, but I think most of us, if not all of us, have to say a lot of my unhappiness comes from there. A lot of my frustration, we get frustrated, we get discouraged, we even get deeply depressed when our will is not done because our will seems so good and it seems so right. And when it's not fulfilled, we wonder what in the world is going on. Your will be done, says, Lord, I realize that it's not about my will, that my perspective is limited, my desires are narrow, short-sighted, That what I demand and desire is so short-sighted, it's so naive. I'm so narrowly focused, Lord, on, on what I want, and I lose sight of what you've promised to do. I lose sight of what you're already doing, and that's why I get so obsessed with what I want to see happen, what I want to have, or what I want to be. The old Puritan Thomas Watson said this. He says, when you pray, your will be done. You're praying that you might do diligently all that he commands and that you might submit patiently to all he inflicts. I don't know if those words hit you hard. They they, they kind of settled on me heavily. It's, It's like we're saying, really, we're saying, have your way, Lord. Have your way. Who in the world can you say have your way to? 
except a person that you can trust completely, whose wisdom and care for you and love for you is beyond doubt. Who else can you say this to? God is saying, I'm worthy. I'm I'm trustworthy. You can say this. It's safe to say this to God. He's the only one in the world that this is safe to say to. I want to do diligently all you command, and I want to submit patiently to all you inflict. It's scary, but there's happiness in that. There's happiness of that if we will trust him. But too often we don't trust him. Too often we're like a, we're like a two-year-old kid who, who's, who's playing with a balloon on a string that they got from a birthday party, and they really wanted that balloon, and they finally got it. And in that moment, that balloon is the source of fun. It's the source of joy. Until, until in a moment of distraction out in the parking lot, that child loosens their grip for just a moment, and that balloon flies away. It disappears. And in that moment, all there is is anger and grief. And that child is inconsolable. Because in that moment, there's nothing that could make that child feel better other than bringing that balloon back or a new one just like it or bigger. Mom and dad can do nothing to quiet that child except say, hey, look, I got it back for you. But what if, what if in that moment, mom were to say to that little two-year-old child, Oh, sweetheart, I know, I know you really love that balloon, and that meant a lot to you, and it's gone now, and that, that really hurts. And, and I don't even have another balloon to give you, but, but guess what? I do have some good news. While you were in the party, this is where the story takes a, a, an unrealistic turn, but while you were in the party, I got a call from, from one of our long-lost relatives, and our long-lost relative just left a message saying that, uh, that they've left us their estate. And this estate is worth millions. Baby, here's what you need to do, sweetheart. You don't realize this, but we are rich now. And and in a little while, you're going to have balloons for days. You're going to have more balloons than you know what to do with. In fact, your future is secured. College is paid for. Come with me. Let's, Let's go get the inheritance. What do you think that child's response is going to be in that moment? That's not going to compute, is it? That little child, they're like, I just want the balloon. What are you talking about? Inherit? You're talking about college? What is I want my balloon. And that child's still inconsolable. Because at that moment, all the child can think about is what they want now. What they want, what they had, what they can't have. The balloon is everything. And, and here's, here's the truth, New Hope. So many of us live our lives focused on our colorful, fragile balloons. <laughs> Either the ones we have that we're gripping tight, or the ones we've lost, or the ones we want. And we're not realizing that there's infinitely more happiness to be found if we'll simply believe God's promises to us. If we'll embrace his kingdom, his will. Jesus in the Lord's prayer is trying to get our attention off our balloons. He's, he wants to shift our perspective completely away from our own kingdoms, our own will, and onto his. And in part, it's so that we can live with, a, with happiness. In part, it's because he wants us to live with settled peace now. 
in this in-between time with happiness, the kind of happiness that feels so elusive most of the time. The Lord's Prayer leads us to where true happiness is. You see, Jesus is not calling us to live as if the things that we desire don't matter at all. He's not like the parent that says, who cares, it was just a balloon, get in the car. No. What he's saying is that if we prioritize what he prioritizes in this prayer, then we will enjoy what matters eternally. I mentioned a few weeks ago that Jesus presents us with this prayer in the middle of a longer sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is about what it looks like to live under God's reign, to live as a citizen of his kingdom, even as we wait for that kingdom to be finalized um, when Christ returns. How to live as a citizen of that kingdom in in between. That's what he's teaching us about. And later in this very sermon, just just really, uh, for many of you, it might even be on the same page, on Matthew 6, chapter 30, Jesus talks about the ways that we anxiously worry and chase after things that we believe will give us safety and comfort. We, 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 we obsess over the things that we believe will satisfy us and make us happy. And then Jesus says these powerful words. He says, he says first of all, stop anxiously chasing all that. And instead, he says, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, he's not saying all those things don't matter. Forget about them. He's saying, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. He's saying desire for, pray for uh, his kingdom, his will, and all these other things. Everything you need to be truly happy, they'll be given to you. You're not going to regret desiring God's kingdom more than you desire all these other things, and spending more time pursuing the expansion and the fulfilling of God's kingdom than you spend chasing all these other things. You see, in fact, if you spend yourself trying to create a comfortable life for yourself, your little kingdom where, where you're in charge and you get what you want, you can spend your life doing that, but really there's no guarantee that you'll succeed, is there? Some of us have felt that. Or we've seen stories of it where people have tried to establish their kingdoms and they just keep hitting failure after failure and it's so disappointing. But the problem is that even if you do succeed in building a comfortable life where you find all the the safety and the pleasure that you're looking for, you're going to find out that it's short-lived and it's unsatisfying. Just like that balloon. It's going to go away one day. And the funny thing is, the mom and dad who are looking at the little baby, the little two-year-old who just lost their balloon, they know that even if they had held on to that balloon and they got it home and they took care of it, they knew that within a couple of days that child's going to be tired of that balloon. That balloon's not permanently satisfying. The balloon's going to be found in a corner somewhere. And then if dad's anything like me, he's going to quietly throw it out when no one's looking. No, but Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, if you, if you spend yourself trying to create a comfortable life for yourself where you're in charge and you get what you want, it's not going to satisfy. Because outside of God's kingdom, there's only final disappointment and pain. But if you focus your life on submitting to God's rule, if that's your aim, you'll enjoy happiness 
the happiness of his kingdom, and that's permanent. You see, it's interesting. It's like if we chase just comfort and pleasure and safety and success, we may not get it, and if we get it, we're going to lose it eventually. But God is saying if you pursue my kingdom first, then you get all the things you need. You get both. It's not even an either-or situation. You get the kingdom, and you get all the things that you truly do need to live a life that's happy. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10, just a few chapters later. He says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Hmm. Whoever loses his life, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I don't have time to really unpack this too much, but I'll simply summarize it this way. It's by giving up claim on our kingdoms, our lives, our will, giving up claim to God that we actually get the good life, a happy life. You know, it's interesting that later on, really just starting next week when we start looking at the second half of this prayer, Jesus starts telling us to ask for the things we need. He's not saying all those things like, like food, necessities, right? Protection, forgiveness. We need all those things. He's not saying, oh, don't worry about all those things. He's saying, seek first my kingdom. All those things, no, they're coming. You can ask for them. Seek first my kingdom. Submit to my will. All those things are yours. Years ago, as a, as a new Christian, I thought, what is the point of praying? <laughs> you know, I thought, like, what, what's the point of saying, your kingdom come, your will be done? Because I used to think, well, God's, God is sovereign, right? He's in control. His kingdom is going to come, no matter what I pray. His will is ultimately going to be done, no matter what I pray, because he's sovereign. So why even pray it? And, and there's this quote that I want to leave you with, with from John Stott that helped me understand why I should pray these words. He says, the purpose of prayer is emphatically not to bend God's will to ours, but rather to align our will to his. And I think he's right. I think he's right. You see, the purpose of prayer isn't to convince God to do something he doesn't want to do. (laughs) Something that he's not intending to do. No, the purpose of prayer is at least in part, it's to shape us into people who see the world the way he does, who see the world the way that Jesus saw the world and sees the world. Now, in the second half of the Lord's Prayer, like I said, Jesus is going to instruct us to ask for things, ask for things we need like food and forgiveness and guidance and protection. But first, before he even gets to that, he wants our perspective and our priorities to shift so, so, that, so that these first three lines of the prayer, they, they will completely shape our priorities. When we say, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, Jesus wants that to shape everything because those were the shaping concerns of his life. He wants those, those concerns to shape our goals and our desires so that they'll align with God's. And what really brings happiness, because Jesus... Jesus really is the happiest, most fulfilled person who's ever lived. And he wants us to share in his joy. And so he says, pray this way. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. We confess, Lord, that the ways we've sought our own kingdoms and our own will, it's, it's, it's obvious to us sometimes, and sometimes it's so subtle we don't even see it. We confess it all to you. And Jesus, you've given us so much more than just advice in these words here. We, we know, Christ, that, that in your moments of deepest pain and anguish, you prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Oh, Christ, we need to see the world. We need to see the Father. We need to see our needs and everything around us the way you do. So, Spirit, Spirit, please fill us and give us the perspective of Christ. Use the words of this prayer to shape our desires. Fill us with the happiness that comes from seeking the Father's kingdom and his will. Amen.